0: Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We are at verse 11 down to verse 14. These are the last verses of one long sentence that began in verse 3. This is a celebration of God's great salvation toward us in Christ. Now, you'll remember last week I brought up an illustration and I want to show you what I bought this week. I'm super excited about this. I've waited since my childhood to get myself one of these. This is the original Slicer Ginsu knife. Now in the early commercials, there would be a man who would come on and get this knife out, this slicer out, and would cut all manner of stuff. He cut a tin can as the kind of climax of the commercial, and it was all for nineteen ninety nine that you can get this knife. Now I have you know I got this on Amazon for twelve ninety nine. However, and that's two thousand twenty, and it was nineteen ninety nine and nineteen 1987, but in those days you would not only get this knife you would also get a set of many other knives and so the guy would show you you get this knife for 1999 but that's not all and then he would give you some more knives he'd say these knives will come to you you'll get these 12 knives but there's more and he would go on and on and you get this huge set of knives for 1999 that's sort of the way ephesians chapter 1 works Just when you think you've read it all in the way of blessing, that God would choose us for adoption in Christ, that's not nearly all of it. Um, Christ himself is the one who redeems us or pays for our sins, um, all by God's predestination. And he gives us the forgiveness of sins because of his death on our behalf. We are promised blessings in the heavenly places, every spiritual blessing. This amounts to a huge inheritance that is obtained for us by Christ and secured to us now in these last verses by the Holy Spirit. So we come to the Holy Spirit's action in all of this. God chooses for adoption. The Son secures that adoption by his finished work and the Holy Spirit applies salvation to us, gives us the spirit of adoption so that we know we are saved. We know that we've been redeemed by Christ because of the work of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit's sealing ministry and his guaranteeing ministry, his assuring ministry. So here now, as we return to Ephesians 1, I will read verse 11 down to verse 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, it has been said that Ephesians 1 is the most comprehensive statement of the Christian religion in the New Testament. Here we have seen the Father's choice to adopt the Son's work of redemption and forgiveness and our reception of every spiritual blessing because of the great work of God. We're only 10 verses in. Now we see the agency of your Holy Spirit in this passage. Lord, please cause us to delight in worshiping you. Help us to be eager to follow our Savior's commands. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What a great listing of blessings that are ours because of our triune God. This is a comprehensive list of blessings great blessings in our redemption through Christ. You know, since I've been using some nostalgic illustrations to depict spiritual truths, I thought I'd bring another one to you. In the 1960s, Jimmy Hoffa was the president of the Teamsters. I know you're probably wondering, how could he spin this into a spiritual illustration? Well, hold on. He used to go around to the various union rallies and give rousing speeches to gather um, the union members together to stay strong and firm together as truck drivers. They needed to stick close together with their message, and he would give this recurring speech. And he had a recurring line or two that would show up in the speeches. They were meant to draw attention to something that the general public would not remember. And even the truckers themselves might forget at times. He would say, if you got it, whatever that item is, then a truck brought it to you. If you've got pencils... If you've got chairs, if you have industry, a truck brought it to you. If you have medicine, a truck brought it to you. And he would go on and on, just getting the crowd roused up by this reality that nothing happened in the commerce world of America or the world without a truck bringing items to and fro or transporting people for that matter. People largely took for granted what is done in the background the trucking industry that actually brings the stuff to us. Hoffa wanted the drivers to remember the importance of their work for the whole of life in America. It was easy for people not to recognize this. Now, in the passage before us, it comes at the culmination of a long sentence about all that God has done for us in Christ. All of the benefits from God's choosing to the Son's redeeming All of the benefits can only be applied to us when the Holy Spirit acts. So if we have salvation, and we do in Christ, if we have redemption through Christ, if we've been chosen by God, if we are adopted sons and daughters, we are those things because the Spirit has actualized it. The Holy Spirit may work in the background, and the Holy Spirit is not trying to put himself in front of the other members of the Trinity, He functions as a support to the Father and the Son. But we ought to recognize that none of what we talk about, none of what we sing about, none of what we celebrate in Christ could be sung about or contemplated in any way if it were not for the working of the Holy Spirit in us. These last verses of this opening section of Ephesians 1 gives us great confidence in God's care because of the promise of the Holy Spirit Working in our lives. And we can be sure of the Holy Spirit's work because we're receiving this message with open ears, with understanding, with desire to hear what is said in God's Word. All of that is because of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we see in this passage how the Holy Spirit guarantees our reception of all these spiritual blessings spoken of in these verses. He guarantees our final reception of our ultimate inheritance in Christ, and all of this is to the praise of God and his glorious grace. Let's look at the passage before us, starting at Ephesians 1.11, where we see reference to this sovereign God working out his plan by agency of the Holy Spirit as the passage unfolds. We have a blessed inheritance. It's our possession of this inheritance, promised by God and provided for by Christ. Verse 11. In him, still referencing Jesus now from the verse before. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, and here's that word again, predestined, ordered by God, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There is a lot in verse 11, and we only have limited time. And then on to verse 12 so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Notice in verse 11 first, Paul refers to God's promises first to the Jews. Remember the Ephesian people were a mixed group, probably predominantly Gentile, but Paul would first speak in the synagogues and the new Christians would come from the Jews first and then the masses would come from the Gentile population. The ultimate goal of the apostolic ministry is to preach the gospel to call the people of God into a unified body, not just Jews and Gentiles, but that would take work. And so as he writes the letter to the Ephesians, he introduces a theme of uniting the Jewish believers with the Gentile believers. He introduces it here as part of the greater general blessing to all Christians, and then he'll speak of it more in chapter 2 and chapter 3. But notice the wording of verse 11. In him we have obtained, he's saying, us, those initial believers who were the Jews. And then in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So he's addressing those Jewish believers, couching in it the sovereignty of God to move in this way, to start first with the Jews and then expand to the Gentiles, ultimately to bring us into unity For the fullness of the gospel to be on display and for the glory of God to be seen by everybody. Verse 11. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who, by the way, works all things according to the counsel of his will. He doesn't just work salvation things to the counsel of his will. All things are worked by this sovereign God. So if you're nervous about your salvation, if you have a lack of assurance about God's keeping his promise, God doesn't just focus on our salvation, he's working all things together according to his purpose. This is the absolute sovereignty of God as the scripture displays God. He's not sort of sovereign or a little bit sovereign, he's absolutely sovereign, and that makes the inheritance we're promised sure, couldn't be any sure than the one who gives promise towards it. And this is the absolutely sovereign God who speaks in these terms. What things does he direct? All things, verse 11, according to the counsel of his will. This is to say, whenever God acts, he acts in a way that pleases him. God is never constrained or confined to do a thing that he despises. He is never backed into a corner where his only recourse is to do something that he just hates to do. God does whatever he pleases. A.W. Pink writes a classic work on the sovereignty of God. and verse 11 here of Ephesians 1 is one of the many citations that he refers to. Pink wrote, The sovereignty of God. What do we mean by this expression? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay his hand nor say unto him, what are you doing? To say that God is sovereign, Pink continues, is to declare that he is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleases him best. Finally, Pink says, to say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. It is the sovereignty of God that assures us that he will deliver on all of his promises to us in Christ. It is the sovereignty of God that brings us surety about our salvation in Christ. Our full redemption is so sure that Paul uses the word inheritance to describe it. Look at verse 11 in the beginning. In him we have, present tense, obtained an inheritance. An inheritance is an interesting thing. It's something we look forward to accessing, but if we have it, it's ours now. And this is as sure as the one who's giving it and promising it, and it's the sovereign God who gives gives us this promise. In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of who? Of the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You could not be any more secure than you are in Christ by the will of the sovereign one, as applied by the Holy Spirit, who we will be introduced to in a fuller way as the passage unfolds. How does God activate this plan he has for us and for all things. How does God carry out his will in us? How does God apply the work of Jesus to us? How does God bring to us an understanding and an embracing of Christ? God the Father chooses. God the Son redeems. God the Holy Spirit applies it to us. Look at verse 13. In him you also... Now he's talking to the Gentiles too. You also, he says to the Gentiles, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now I read that fast, not just because I always talk fast. I want you to see that in the original language, this is one simultaneous action that happens in verse 13. It's not meant to be sequential with one step happens, the next step happens, the next step. That's not how it reads in the original language. The bigger message of verse 13 is the Holy Spirit seals us. The change goes to you, the Gentiles brought into this. In him you also, and now look how this happens together. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Notice the last part of verse 13. And believed in him were sealed with with the promised Holy Spirit. There's no and before being sealed in the Holy Spirit because this is describing one action of how the people came to know Christ. Yes, they heard the message of the gospel proclaimed and believed. But as they believed, at the same time they were believing, they were being sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now there are other passages that give us even more insight in how the Holy Spirit works and we'll get to them in chapter 2 of Ephesians. So Jumping ahead a little, we realize the sovereignty of God, even in the application of the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the great unifier of God's people. He starts by talking to the Jews who believe first, and now in him you also, when you heard the word of truth and believed, now he's talking to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit is what we have in common as Christians. The Holy Spirit is one who brings us into communion with God and then also with each other. That sense of family that you have with your church family, that comes from the Holy Spirit's unifying us. We have blood relatives, and that's a close union for sure. But there's something supernatural about the union we have in Christ, and the Holy Spirit activates that unity. The Spirit makes us understand and sense our relationship with other believers. So no matter what your background is or the various boundaries or labels or identities we might claim, if you are in Christ, you are in communion with other believers because of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit uniting all of us as believers. Ultimately, we are not unified by blood, meaning relatives, by our vocations, by our nationalities, our ethnicities, our political views, or some other alliances. We, the people of Christ, are unified by the work of Jesus, applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And Paul is using the Jewish-Gentile division to show how that division should not be seen any longer in the Holy Spirit. And you can apply any number of divisions that people may have today. They go away in Christ, and it's the Holy Spirit who brings this unity when he seals us in the Father through the Son. The Father chooses us, the Son redeems us, the Holy Spirit seals us. Look at what unfolds in verse 13. It's all of our stories. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, the promised Holy Spirit. So we see how closely connected is the gospel's message with belief and being sealed by the Holy Spirit. You know, there are multiple ministries of the Holy Spirit described by the Scripture. Many of these ministries overlap one another. And they're behind the scenes. The regeneration of the Holy Spirit, which we'll see more as this book unfolds. This is when the Holy Spirit supernaturally breathes life into someone who is dead. And that's true for everybody Who's born and dead in their trespasses and sins. That's the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. There's the sealing of the Holy Spirit that we see here that's a marking us with God's sign of ownership, confirming us as God's possession. There's the guaranteeing ministry, that which we'll see in verse 14. Or you might call it the assuring ministry of the Holy Spirit, where we are enabled to know that we belong to God. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit applied to the prophets and the apostles as they spoke the Word of God and wrote the Word of God. The illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit that we require when reading God's Word, that the Spirit of God enlivens our understanding to understand what has been written in the text of Scripture. That's God's illuminating work through the Holy Spirit. In the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, when God tweaks our spirits about sin or something that we should be aware of that is in opposition to God. He convicts us of our sins. That's part of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. All these different ministries. There are two, though, that we would consider in this passage. In verse 13 and verse 14. The Holy Spirit's sealing ministry and the Holy Spirit's guaranteeing ministry. Here's the real practical where the rubber meets the road, and it's not just a a deep doctrinal truth. It's more than that. No doubt you have asked yourself the question, am I really saved? Do I have the Holy Spirit? How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I have the Holy Spirit? Because some well-meaning Christians will tell you, well, to know for sure you have the Holy Spirit, you have to have some experience that authenticates the Holy Spirit lives within you. Um, It might be speaking in tongues. It could be some vision you might have. It could be some miracle that you see or do or be part of. Lots of things have been taught in these lines. But the answer about whether you're saved or not or whether you have the Holy Spirit or not is far more simple than that, way more simple. Notice what Paul says to the Ephesians. He doesn't say this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed and spoke in tongues then you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. He does not say this. In fact, he says something very different. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 13, it's it's really one action of God described in steps as you see them. When you heard and believed, were sealed. Here's The test for the Holy Spirit in you. Do you believe that Christ is your Savior? Do you believe the death of Jesus on your behalf pays for your sins? Yes or no? If you say yes, you have the Holy Spirit. Nobody believes that unless the Holy Spirit enables them to believe this. You don't have to wait for tongues or some miracle or some supernatural expression That is the supernatural expression that you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, an enemy to God, would ever say, yes, I'm a sinner and I need Christ. Only the Holy Spirit could do this, and you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and the proof of it is you believe in the gospel. Don't take for granted that you believe in the gospel, because there's many people that would hear the same message and reject it. You don't reject it because the Holy Spirit has sealed you. That's what it means. In particular, literally, what does a seal mean? Um, the Greek word refers to a seal that is affixed to something in an outward way. A a king might have a signet ring, like a class ring, with an emblem on it that was unique to him and would send a letter that was officially from him and to mark the letter as his, as official, as owned by him. He would put a piece of wax on the seal part of the, or on the envelope part that closes, and then put this piece of wax over it, sealing it, and then stick his ring into it, pull it back out. And his ring was unique to only him. So whoever received it would say, this letter is the king's. This letter is owned by the king. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit and sealing marks us as the king's. We are his. And how do we know it? We believe in the gospel, because nobody else believes the gospel, unless the king seals us to that That's what it means to have a seal. Literally, a seal signifies ownership and the full security carried by the backing of the owner. Sealing in the ancient world served as a legal signature which guaranteed the promise, the contents, of what was sealed. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We belong to God. We are his possession. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, this continued language of possession and inheritance works its way through this passage. And there are some difficulties even with the language in that, but we'll take it at face value first. Verse 14, where we see the Holy Spirit, not only the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit now, but the guaranteeing ministry of the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our inheritance in Christ, or that we are God's possession. These are synonymous terms, and we'll see how this works. Verse 14. Who is, the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? We've seen what it means that the Holy Spirit is a seal What does it mean that he is a guarantee? The Greek word here means he's a deposit or an installment, a payment. It's a partial payment of what is guaranteed to come in full later. That's what the Holy Spirit is for us. Recently, we had to have one of our sons, Nico's car, shipped from California, where we had to leave it in March when he had to leave from school and everything shut down and no travel was allowed for some time. So we had to hire a truck driver to load it up in Los Angeles and then drive the truck with the car to the church parking lot for $600. Now, for that driver, I got to talk to him when he pulled into the driveway over here and he unloaded it and we talked just about his business. He had driven, left L.A. around that time about four days before and then had picked up and dropped off 23 different cars by the time he got to dropping off Nico's car here. And the way his business works, he's a sole proprietor. So he needs a deposit to prove that he'll get the rest of his money. So I had to pay him $200 when he was in LA with a promise that he would get the other $400 when he brought the car here. Now he didn't have to give me the car if I didn't give him the $400. I couldn't get it off of that, that double deck trailer he had. But the deposit guaranteed to him That he was going to get paid in full and could make the trip. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our final salvation. The Holy Spirit testifies to us that we will receive what God promises in in totality. We get a little bit of it now. It's not like the guy didn't have 200 in his pocket. But he wouldn't get the full amount till later. And the Holy Spirit guarantees us, by all the ministries that he does, that we are gods, we belong to God. He is the pledge of God's final giving of our inheritance in Christ. The Greek word means a down payment pledge. It is the regular term, according to the lexicon, in New Testament times for earnest money. advance payment that guarantees the rest will be given. The Holy Spirit confirms our interest in Christ now and for eternity. The Holy Spirit serves as a partial payment towards what will be fully realized in glory. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of safe passage to eternity. Now, I want you to look at verse 14, and there's an interesting study about verse 14 that really uh, would properly have to be handled in a Bible study on its own. The language of verse 14 differs in the various English translations. The ESV that you have before you, it says, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? To the praise of his glory. The phrase that's discussed and debated a bit is until we acquire possession of it. The manuscripts literally say something more like this Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Now that doesn't read as smoothly, but the language is seeming to tap into that Old Testament language where we are God's special possession. And remember, he promised the Israelites an inheritance. But the inheritance was ultimately going to be as a showcase of God's faithfulness. And so the wording seems to indicate, and some of the better technical commentaries draw attention to this, it's better to view this inheritance that we will receive as God's fulfillment of bringing his people to the redemption in finality to show his possession of us. Now, that's partly our inheritance, to be God's people and all the benefits that come. So either way you look at it, translation-wise, it doesn't do harm to the deeper meaning, but it's probably best to read this, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. The church is God's possession, who is secured by Christ. Because we are owned by God through the payment of Jesus, we receive all the benefits spoken of in Ephesians 1. When Jesus spoke as the shepherd in the Gospel of John several times, he said in John 6, verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of God's possession being kept safe and the inheritance that we will fully partake of. The Holy Spirit is the seal and guarantee assuring us that all the spiritual blessings promised by God through Christ will be realized. In this portion of scripture that we have spent our time on so far, Paul moves earth aside, as John Stott said, so that we can see God's entire plan. Stott also said in Ephesians 1, God lifts us, lifts us above our earthly perspective to see God's angle on things. We are raised above our limited human viewpoint to see God's view. It's a heaven view about his unfolding plan. If I wanted to introduce someone to Jesus, I would turn them to the Gospel of John and say, this is Jesus, you'll be introduced. If I wanted to explain to someone how God did his work of salvation through Jesus, I would give them Ephesians 1. Uh, You have the angle of Jesus' earthly ministry as we observe it and we receive it. And then you have the, the backstory in Ephesians chapter 1. Well, what is the end goal of Ephesians 1 in everything that's being described here? What's the end goal of all these many benefits that we have? Now, on the first level, I will say to you, the end goal is eternal life for me. That's what I know it to be the case. I mean, that's what I know. That's what I'm so overjoyed concerning. If you're like me, you're relieved that your sins are forgiven and that you have fellowship with God. The good news about Christ gives us new life. We have a new outlook on life. We have a new perspective. We have new purpose. We have something to look forward to. All of this is so personal. This is uh, the outcome for us, for sure. The truth revealed in Ephesians 1 give us comfort and security. But our personal comfort and joy is not the end goal of God's work of redemption. Back at verse 5 of Ephesians 1. Remember it. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now we see what the end goal of redemption is. Verse 12 of our passage before us today. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Yes, we will praise him personally for being saved, But that praising goes to his glory. In verse 14, the final passage before us this morning. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. As Brian Chappell said, we are instruments of his glory, not mere observers of his sovereignty. James Boyce captured it well regarding these verses we have now concluded. He said Ephesians 1:3 through14 is actually a single sentence that embraces most of the essential doctrines of Christianity. It deals with the doctrines of God, the Trinity, election, the work of Christ, forgiveness, the gospel, grace, creation, the consummation of world history, when all things are brought under subjection to Christ, and others besides. That's James Boyce's way of doing a Ginsu commercial. What's the end goal of this great salvation, brothers and sisters? It is all to the praise of his glory. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Heavenly Father, our great triune God, we have gathered a dynamic picture of your saving plan as it is accomplished by each member of the Godhead. Father, you have chosen us for adoption. Jesus, by your life and work, you have made payment for our sins and purchased us forgiveness with God. Holy Spirit, you have sealed us by giving us faith in Christ and you are our guarantee for eternal life and the reception of our full inheritance in Christ. Lord, lift our praise to you for this great work of salvation. And we ask that this knowledge of your salvation revealed by Ephesians here, that it would work itself out in our lives through obedience and lives of worship. And we pray for this end result to be for the praise of your glorious grace. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.